The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. My favorite thing about working in healthcare is the people. This industry brings together brilliant, highly motivated individuals who are driven by the opportunity to make a difference. My name is Hallie Tecco, and this is The Heart of Healthcare, a podcast where I'll be introducing you to the people on the ground moving the needle in public health and medicine. North American sales of savory snacks like chips, popcorn, and pretzels climbed to $56.9 billion in 2020, 11% more than 2019. In stressful times, people turn to snacking for comfort, and COVID-19 has transformed kitchens across the U.S. into giant vending machines. So has COVID-19 put an end to the shift to healthier snacks? Obesity is a grave public health threat with U.S. adult obesity rates topping 40% in 2020. Obesity is linked to chronic diseases, including type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, cardiovascular disease, and many types of cancer. There is no doubt that the food industry plays a role in this crisis. Today, I'm talking to Michael Moss, who I consider a healthcare hero because of his investigative work looking into the underbelly of the processed food industry in the context of public health and ethics. Michael is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author of the number one New York Times bestseller book, Salt, Sugar, Fat, and his most recent book, Hooked, Food, Free Will, and How the Food Giants Exploit Our Addictions. Michael was formerly a reporter at the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and an adjunct professor at Columbia University School of Journalism. Michael, welcome to the Heart of Healthcare. Hey, thanks for having me. Let's start from the beginning. You are an investigative journalist and writer, but I'd also consider you a health and nutrition advocate because (laughs) of the work that you've done to shine a light on what the food giants are doing kind of behind the scenes. Uh, Tell us about your background and what prompted you to dig deeper into the food industry. Yeah, it was kind of accidental. I mean, you know, I was working for the investigative group at the New York Times. 9-11 happened. A lot of us became national security reporters. Um, The war in Iraq happened. And it was about 18 months into the war in Iraq when my editor at the Times spotted this press conference that Don Rumsfeld had um, where a National Guardsman from Kentucky raises his hand and says, excuse me, sir, but, you know, two years into the war, we're still having to go dumpster diving for sheet metal to strap onto our trucks because we have no armor and we're getting chewed up by roadside bombs. And Christine kind of goes to me like, Michael, like, what's up with that? And so I spent the next few years kind of tormenting the Pentagon for doing this deal with defense contractors where they just kind of focused on jet fighters and aircraft carriers and big ticket items and completely neglected the needs of soldiers, body armor, et cetera. And in, in, you know, in a way, it's kind of shifting responsibility to uh, to us, the people, right? Um, and I mentioned that only because I started then kind of writing critically about the war on terrorism. And I got in some trouble and I had to come home. And it was like going from one war to another because, again, my editor at the Times, Christine Kay, had spotted this outbreak of salmonella in peanuts that were being manufactured on the in southern Georgia on the Alabama border. And these tainted peanuts were being used in dozens and dozens of products, you know, we're buying in the grocery store. Um, and kind of unbeknownst to these big companies, food companies that were using them because they had totally lost control of their food chain and in many ways kind of shifted responsibility for food safety to us, the consumer. And it just kind of opened this whole world. And that's kind of when I started crawling through the underbelly of this this trillion dollar cartel like industry we call processed food. 
what are the biggest problems that you see within the food industry that are the biggest threat to our public health and well-being and security? Yeah, you mentioned the big one. It's a, it's a, it's a crude measure, but obesity, right? I mean, even before the pandemic, we hit 42%. That's almost one in two American adults being not just overweight, but having 30, 40, 50 extra pounds on their body. That's, I think, it's one of the biggest measures of our losing control of our eating habits um, by becoming so dependent on these processed food products. But then there's type 2 diabetes and there's liver and and who knows, maybe even some associations to several types of cancers and, and, and kind of not just that, but I kind of argue that our trouble with food is not just kind of at that, that end. It's like we gave up you know, home cooked meals for family and with family and friends, you know, for eating like hot pockets walking down the street. And it's like, where did that come from? And I think that kind of defines our our overarching trouble, trouble with food. So in your book, you suggest that junk foods that I love, like French fries and ice cream, are not only addictive, but can actually be even more addictive than alcohol, tobacco, drugs. Can you say more about the addictive element of foods? Yeah. I mean, if we had had this conversation five years ago and you had said to me, you know, Oreo cookies were as addictive as heroin, I would have, I would have like laughed because it just seems ludicrous. And there's, there's, there's lots of pushback from the food industry on that. I mean, they go, oh, come on now. I mean, look at a brain scan of somebody on heroin versus Twinkies and, and the heroin brain is much more hyped up, you know, because of the drug and, you know, not everybody loses control of Oreo cookies. So how can you blame us? Right. Isn't this on you guys more of that kind of shifting responsibility? And then one of the coolest arguments that they put up was like, where's all the harsh chemicals in food? I mean, okay, there's 5,000 additives, but there's nothing like you find in tobacco, alcohol and, and, and drugs. Um, and so I went through all of those arguments, um, and I have to say that five years later, I completely turned around and I'm now convinced that in many ways, these food products are not only as addictive and troubling for us as, as tobacco, alcohol and drugs, but in some ways, they're even more problematic for us. Well, we live in a capitalist society and these brands need to compete. One of the things that I learned in your book was that the supermarket went from having 6,000 items in the 80s to 33,000 items today. <laughs> right. So, yeah, I mean, how how does just competition and business play into how the, these food companies have evolved? Right. So you walk in the grocery store, right? And we have this impression. It's just like this la-la land, right? There's soft music playing, bright neon colors. It's very soothing. Actually, what's going on is the supermarket and the food companies are trying to get you to kind of forget about who you are and what your health needs are. So you're more apt to sort of buy things spontaneously, impulsively. But behind the scenes is one of the fiercest competitions in the world of commerce, right? These food companies, and they're dominated by 10 gigantic multinational companies, are fighting for a share of our stomach, as they call it. And they're fighting for space on the grocery shelf. And so if they can come up with a new version of Cheerios, and if you haven't been in the cereal aisle lately, you should go because, you know, in a larger supermarket, there are some 200 versions of the same thing, sugary starch. But if they can come up with a new, you know, version of Cheerios with a new color on the front or new cartoon character or some new made up flavor in the chemical laboratory, um, then they're going to get a little bit more on the shelf. And that means profits. So it kind of they have this term called line extensions where they talk about, you know, expanding their space on the grocery shelf to, to get us excited. Yeah. Well, you said fighting for share of stomach, which is interesting because they've benefited from us consuming more calories. Yeah. Right? The, the, the pie has grown. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, you mentioned calories. So one of the things that really struck me um, in doing the reporting for the, for the latest book um, I, I wrote is how 
not only do these companies use kind of extraordinary science in perfecting the things that they add to these products. In the first book I wrote, I focused on salt, sugar, fat as this unholy trinity, right, on which they rely to get us not just to like their products, but to want more and more. And they have, you know, they have food engineers and chemists working for them to find the right formulas. But they've also figured out how to tap into our own basic instincts that for most of our existence drew us toward food in a really good way. And one of the fascinating things about that elements of that is calories. So for most of our existence, getting calories was a really good thing, right? It, it helped us get through famine. It helped our brains to grow. Um, actually, it helped us to have more offspring, right? And so we developed sensors in our gut, possibly even on our tongue, that tell us how many calories are coming in on the food. And the brain, we can see through neuroscience, gets more excited by food that has more calories because it makes sense, right? It's life or death. Well, dial forward to the last 50 years and the food industry, realizing that we get excited by calories, you know, started inventing these junk foods that are loaded with calories, but completely devoid of nutritional value. Um, and the reason why that's so troubling for us is that evolutionary, we're equipped to detect calories, but we're not yet equipped to sort of detect, you know, nutrition-less food with lots of calories. And so our brain doesn't go, well, wait a minute, that's not really food I'm eating. Our brain goes, wow, that's exciting. Let's get more of those Cheetos and potato chips and what have you. Yeah. So the, the food has evolved faster than our mind-body connection and understanding yeah, I, what we need. Yeah. Yeah. There's this really brilliant scientist at Yale named Dana Small who did the very first brain scan study where she was able to, she's a chocoholic, right? And she discovered that she could slide her subjects into the, into the scanner where you have to stay really still, right? You can't like be chewing cheeseburgers in the brain scanner. It'll, it'll blur the images. But Dana discovered she can put chocolate on their tongues and it will melt as they're lying there still. So Dana was one of the first people to be able to kind of crawl inside our heads and, and look at how our brains respond to different kinds of food. But Dana is also, you know, a huge fan of Charles Darwin. And she at one point sort of said to me, you know, look, Michael, it's, it's not so much that we're addicted to food. It's that we by nature are drawn to food. And these food companies have changed the nature of our food so dramatically in the last 50 years that our biology hasn't had time to sort of catch up. Yeah, I'm also, uh, I would say, addicted to chocolate or sweets. I feel like I can't, my meal doesn't feel complete without it. Mm. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, what's the difference between being something being addictive versus something being habit forming? Yeah. And there are some scientists I spent time with in this last reporting who who kind of still argue that maybe our, our our trouble with food maybe is better defined as being a very, very bad habit. Um, but by and large, when people talk about addiction, there's this element of losing control, right? And I think that that defines many of these products. And of course, it's different for all people. I mean, I'll tell you this crazy story, right? So for years and years, and a lot of people don't know this, the single largest manufacturer of processed food in North America was none other than the single largest manufacturer of cigarettes, the company Philip Morris, because it bought this old company called General Foods and then Kraft and then Nabisco, right, which makes Oreo cookies. So, and I had the chance to actually spend some time with the former general counsel of Philip Morris, Steve Parrish, and he was talking about his smoking habits, right? And he goes, you know, Michael, I'm, I was one of those people who could have one cigarette in one of our business meetings, put the pack away, and never have any inclination to pull it out again until the next day. But I could not go near a bag of our Oreo cookies, because they owned Oreo cookies at the time, without losing control and eating half of the bag. And that kind of self-awareness in the industry is, is also kind of one of the surprising things I came across, right? I mean, the people making these products we're talking about don't eat them. 
Um, they know better or they have, you know, the financial resources where they can have, you know, cooks at home or personal trainers and just sort of a, you know, a higher awareness of the connection that eating has to your overall health, um, which I think is really revealing of, yeah. of, of the industry and its, its, its approach to getting us hooked on their products when it's avoiding them themselves. Yeah. Well, I mean, the data shows that the more a person earns, the less likely they are to have obesity and that rural communities have higher rates of obesity and severe obesity than suburban or metro areas. You know, it's hard to ignore the social conditions like poverty and racial discrimination that play a role in diet and nutrition. How do you think the food industry preys on the most vulnerable Americans? Yeah, and you're so right about that. I mean, I gave a talk uh, once to the Hospital Association in Kansas, and at, at one point, somebody in the audience, and they were trying to like fix hospital food, um, which is a, which is a big problem um, in, in in most institutions. But at one point, somebody raised their hand and said, "Look, for me to get vegetables, I have to drive an hour." to the nearest Walmart, because that's the only place, it's the only like store that's kind of selling fresh vegetables. And I kind of realized that much of the heartland of this country is a gigantic food desert, because something like 90% of the acreage planted in this country is planted in the kind of the two essential ingredients to highly processed food, soybeans, and then this thing called field corn, which is not like corn on the cob. It's a different kind of animal that makes high fructose corn syrup and animal feed and, and, and ethanol. Um, and that people in the, in the heartland of America have to import. They're eating, they're eating vegetables. They're buying at Walmart that are imported from California, much like we're a developing country and, and exporting all our good products overseas. Um, so so that's kind of the, the situation that people are wrestling with. And of course, you can find these food deserts in New York and LA and, and on the coast where you have great farmers markets as well. Not everybody has access to, to those great things. So the industry has this incredible thing they call the 80-20 rule. And it basically, and this applies to other products besides food too, but it basically says that 20% of people will eat 80% of your product. And knowing, and in this case, that 20% of people are people who are most vulnerable to kind of overdoing it on junky food. And knowing that the industry will concentrate their advertising, their marketing power on getting those people to buy their product. And children? Oh, my gosh. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, I mean, habits form at a really young age, right? Yeah. I mean, we develop likes and dislikes for, for food products, um, possibly even when we're still in the womb, depending on what our mother is eating, but certainly at an, at an early age. And a lot of that has to do with memory. And and by the way, one of the factors that convinced me that that these products are more trouble for us than than tobacco, alcohol, or drugs, or can be, is memory because we develop really strong memories for food. And we tend to associate those memories with other emotions so that knowing this, um, the soda companies, Coca-Cola and Pepsi, have labored really hard to get a soda into the hands of a kid when they're at the ballpark with their parents, knowing that that soda will forevermore be associated with that joyous moment. Um, and so dial forward 40, 50 years, that kid, now an adult, needs some comfort, some joy in their life. They're going to think of soda as being as being mm -hmm. the way to have that joy. Yeah, I have I have a quick story on that. So the hardest thing I've ever had to do was not get into Harvard Business School. <laughs> <laughs> um, was not, you know, going through IVF. It, actually, giving up soda was extremely difficult for me. Um, I have a photo, I actually recently shared it on social media of me at maybe two years old with soda in my bottle. Uh, so my, <laughs> I don't want to shame my parents, but so it was, you know, early 80s, uh, you know, perhaps not as much understanding of the long-term impacts of drinking soda. My parents are still quite addicted. Um, but I, I was born and raised on, yeah. on soda. 
So I ended up giving it up in my mid-20s. It was extremely hard. I became depressed. I had massive headaches. I called it my blue period. I'd never faced anything like that before. Um, And then you know, I came out the other end with a much better. Um, I, I haven't had one since then, 12 years, but it was, it was really, huh. it was, it was really, really hard. I can imagine because you're wrestling with those deep childhood memories that yeah. they don't go away. You know, I walked into this Kellogg's research and development factory. I was, I was talking to them about their incredible dependence, their own dependence mm. on using salt and everything. But mm-hmm. they were experimenting with Pop-Tarts and, and a big batch had like screwed up and the aroma, they were dumping it into a dumpster and the, the aroma wafted across the factory floor. That took me instantly back to my days as a latchkey elementary school kid in California when I would come uh-huh. home, let myself in and have a strawberry Pop-Tart. I hadn't had a Pop-Tart since then, but just the aroma triggered that memory. Mm. And what's going on here is that the Pop-Tart never left my head. Mm. You know, it's there in this strong memory associating probably with some other emotions. And, yeah. and so that's that's kind of what we're that's what we're up against. Um, yeah. And but, you know, I should mention, too, it's not just soda or ice cream or cookies. What's really problematic for us is that the food companies have marched around the store adding sugar to things that didn't used to be sweet. Um, sure. And they call this, by the way, cre- you know, engineering the bliss point for these products to drive us crazy and send us over the moon and their products yeah. flying off the shelf, right? So, so you know, bread like what products? Have, give it, yeah, well, give us some examples. Bread came to have added sugar and a bliss point for mm. sweetness. Some yogurts came to have as much sugar as ice cream. I, I'd love to stand in the spaghetti sauce aisle, right? Because yeah. some of the brands came to have the equivalent of a couple of Oreo cookies worth wow. of sweetness in a tiny half cup serving. Wow. And what this did arguably is taught us to expect sweetness in everything we mm-hmm. eat. And by one count now, 66% of the items in the grocery store have added sweeteners in them. Yeah. But here's the problem. When you when you listen to what every nutritionist says we should be doing, which is eating more stuff from the produce aisle, right? And you drag yourself over there and try to, you know, and you're buying broccoli and Brussels sprouts and you're getting some of those other basic tastes that Aristotle wrote about, identified way back when, sour, bitter. Your brain is rebelling. It's going like, where's the sugar? I, I you know, that's what, that's what's food in my brain. And God help you if you have little kids, you know, to yeah. them, they're going to be like running back to the middle of the store um, because mm-hmm. that's what they've gotten used to. Yeah, well, that's interesting because when I did give up soda, I found that my taste palate changed overall. And so sugary drinks, whether it's an iced tea, I couldn't have a sweetened iced tea. It had to be unsweetened. Um, I think before when I was dependent on that taste, my palate just had that craving that was really difficult to to get rid of. Um, so, yeah, that is <laughs> that is so interesting. No, yeah. and one of the things I've realized, too, is is that a lot of the stuff I'm sort of writing about weren't invented. They weren't invented by the they didn't invent by the food industry. They didn't invent sugar or salt or fat. And, and those things are fabulous in the hands of a home cook. Right. They simply took those things and exploited them in a way that caused trouble for us. Um, So one of the things I've kind of been toying with are, you know, the ways that we can turn the tables on the industry and take back things that, you know, used to be ours and the industry took and corrupted them. And so, for example, soda, right? I mean, before they started dumping lots of sugar in bubbly water, there was plain seltzer, right? There's a town in Germany named seltzer where people have been sitting sitting around for centuries debating the merits of one soda water or another. And I was really curious about that. But it turns out that kind of the science of effervescence of bubbles tells us that we kind of like and get excited by bubbly, plain bubbly water almost as much as the sugary water. And hmm. so there's an example of where the industry took great seltzer, dumped a bunch of sugar into it. And now maybe, you know, we're in a position to go, okay, I can move back to the plain bubbles and get enough kind of joy and excitement from just that, um, enough to kind of get me over the hurdle of needing that sugar fix. 
We'll be right back after the break. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. So on on top of, of just having healthier alternatives that bring you to the same bliss point. Do you think that taxing sugar-sweetened beverages could support a reduction in adult and child obesity? It does seem to work. And somebody mentioned to me the other day that when we walk in the grocery store, we get like 30 opportunities to buy soda. It's like in our face on every aisle cap and at the, you know, at the checkout Checkout. counter Mm -hmm. and yeah, 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 yeah. And so, I mean, that's again, shifting responsive, talk about shifting responsibility. That's putting enormous burden on us to 30 times say no, right? Mm -hmm. So sugar taxes do seem to have this power and it kind of falls in the area of nudge marketing, right? Um, Kind of subtly, making us aware of that purchase decision and putting something else into the equation. Because as much as we love cheap junk food, we also love money. And just imposing a little bit of extra tax on that seems to be enough to kind of get people to stop and go, wait a minute, do I really need this? Mm -hmm. And, And New York has done this. Yeah, New York tried it. It was like really crazy when Bloomberg did it because there was like, he wanted to ban at public institutions those ginormous containers of soda, right? And that campaign probably wasn't rolled out very effectively because the pushback, you know, accusing him of being the nanny state was pretty severe. Um, but but I think his heart was in the in the right place of looking for ways just to wake people up and, you know, helping people to change how they value food. Because our entire lives in the last 50 years, we have allowed these 10 giant companies to tell us what we should value in food. And so I really love all of these efforts going on now to sort of help people turn that around and, you know, help them change how they value food. I think that's really critical to any solution. Perhaps one of the greatest public health challenges. <laughs> so let's let's talk about nutrition labels. Um, I was thinking last night as I was prepping for our conversation today, I was looking at some nutrition labels. I was wondering how accurate they are, how they come up with the numbers, how everything seems to be like 50, 100, 120 calories. Um, you never see like 122.9 calories per serving. <laughs> so right. it got me thinking, Are you know, wh- what goes into creating these labels and are they accurate? And who is accountable for ensuring that they are accurate? Yeah, I've seen some reporting that sort of the accuracy can be like a little sketchy. I mean, I think that, you know, 
when you see those numbers, it's like give or take 10%, right? Because mm-hmm. the products aren't all, always uniform and it's kind of hard to measure caloric. I mean, what they do is they'll take that food and put it in a blender and then through some hocus pocus kind of measure the the fuel content, the caloric content of it, right? So that's wait, kind wait, of wait, more- wait, 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 stop, stop, stop. They literally put the food in a blender oh, and then yeah. test it. And yeah, yeah, sure. Because you can't just like. I mean, how are you gonna how are you gonna tell what a cheeseburger maybe they, has? They, because- yeah, I thought maybe they they added it from the individual ingredients. Oh, that's no, so interesting. Yeah. No, no, no. They like put it all in the blender and then they like take the blender and I forget. I for, I, somebody walked me through the science yeah. of that and it's 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 kind of <laughs> fascinating. But I think the bigger here's the, here's what I think the bigger problem is. So so and and I don't want to go overboard on this because. Until the 90s, we didn't know what was in this stuff at all. There were no labeling requirements. So hats off to the FDA for forcing these companies to at least list the ingredients. And and then they did this thing called the Nutrition Facts Box, right, Mm -hmm. which lists, you know, all the components. But I have to say when – well, there's two issues. One – when even I look at a nutrition facts box on a product and I'm looking at the calories and the saturated fat and the salt, I mean, it's just baffling to me. I mean, it's like, how does this one can of vegetable beef soup or whatever fit into my, I have like no idea how many calories I'm getting in a day or how much salt, right? How does that one product going to sort of change my overall health profile? It's just kind of, Crazy. And then there's all these other things in the facts box, too, like the things we should be getting more of calcium and, Mm. you know, sort of good elements of food. So it's for me, it's, and I think a lot of people, it's really confusing to look at that. But here's the bigger issue is that these food companies are really, really good at changing their formulas to respond to whatever particular concern we have at the moment over Mm. their products. And so, and you can kind of go back over time and see this. In the 80s, we became concerned about sugar. And so the companies began doing things to kind of reduce the sugar in some of their products. But when they did that, you know, because the allure is all important, they would jack up the fats and the salt to keep us coming back and liking the product. 90s were kind of about salt, you know, fat. They started reducing fats and you saw increases in sugar and Fat-free. salt. And, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, so I think one of the issues here to think about is what people call nutritionalism. And when we think about food, you know, in regards to its individual components, I think the food giants win because they can change their formulas, as I said, to sort of meet whatever concern we have. And when you look at that nutrition facts box, I think it can be helpful, but it doesn't really ultimately tell you, is this a good food or a bad food? You know, eating, you know, eating a product in a package with kind of seemingly good levels of salt and fat and sugar, that product may still be completely devoid of like solid nutritional value for us. And you you can't see that on the on sure. the nutrition facts box. Yeah. I mean it's also easy to manipulate the serving size. So <laughs> Oh my God. Yeah. Well absolutely. <laughs> right. So that's one of the issues that came up is the companies realized that they could put what they called, you know, five servings of cookies or crackers in a package. And, you know, we'd eat the whole thing, right? Mm -hmm. But in order to know how many calories that was, we had to like do the math ourselves. Again, shifting responsibility to us because they would list the calories per serving. And it's like, oh, you know. Sure. Yeah. And you might, you might look at the label at the store while you're making the purchasing decision. But then once it kind of meets that filter, you go home and you eat what you're going to eat. Right. There's yeah. that. Like, who can keep track of? Again, it's like, again, it's, a, it's a job. Right? It would, yeah, it's a, it's a it's additional a work time job. <laughs> when you know you've got kids, or you're working two jobs, mm-hmm. or you're distracted or stressed. You know, we saw this with the pandemic eating. By the way, right? We thought that at least when we started, everybody started working at home. At least we get away from the most treacherous corner of the processed food industry, the vending machine at work, right? Well, what happened is many of us turned our kitchen cupboards into vending machines because we went shopping. And under the stress and strain of the pandemic, we began buying that childhood junk, right? That stuff we hadn't had since we were kids and brought them home. And sales of those products soared during really? the pandemic. And I think they're still up. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's scary. Um, 
Do you think that we're going to look back on fast food and processed food the same way we now look back at tobacco? Because now we're all like, oh, yeah, of course, you know, smoking is bad. But, you know, in the 90s and before the 90s, that wasn't clear to everyone. Yeah, I, I don't know. And you're right. And I was only surprised by that because I kind of forgotten that tobacco history that up until even the <laughs> mid 90s, people by and large thought that somebody getting, you know, lung cancer from smoking, that was kind of pretty much their fault, right? That they should have like not smoked. And it was only till mm-hmm. the mid 90s that people realized that smoking for many people is kind of one of those things that just destroys your free will, your ability mm. to kind of say no, that it is deeply addictive. And so the responsibility for that lies within the industry as, as, as well as people. There's something about food, though, that I think and and some lawyers who went after big tobacco have looked at going after big food in much the same way. And there's there's something about us and the situation where we're, we're still not willing to, you know, point the finger at these products and go, this is a product that's designed in a way that kills off my personal choice, my free will to make decisions that's addictive. And it, I'm not quite sure what it is, but I think it goes back to sort of our lifetime of being told that these things are cute, right? Saturday morning cartoons, you know, getting inundated kind of with the marketing, the advertising for these products. I mean, it's really hard to imagine, you know, a march through Brooklyn or New York protesting Oreo cookies, right? It sort of seems, it seems laughable. And yet, you know, that's emblematic of the kind of foods that's creating an enormous health problem for yeah. us. Maybe there'll be a truth campaign around Oreos someday. Maybe, but the, so but the other thing <laughs> is, you mentioned all the products in the grocery store, and one of the yeah. issues is how do you know which product you single out, right? Because it's not just Oreo cookies. And if you were to ask me, are Oreo cookies bad? I would go, well, no, not if you can eat just one a day. Yeah. Who can do that? If they're your trigger food and you're going to sit down and eat the whole package, then yeah, those things are trouble. But those trigger foods kind of vary from person to person. And I think it's the it's the overall dependence on these products that we're kind of talking about. So so which one do you put on the placard, you know, marching down the street? For me, it would be McDonald's fries. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I love Um, fries. I'm not, not, I don't have a big sweet tooth, but I am a fat and salt guy. I have to say potato chips. Oh my God. Okay. Well tell, yeah, I'm I'm curious what sort of, um, you know, what sort of rules do you follow in your day-to-day eating? Yeah. I kind of hate to talk about that because I am so lucky. I mean, I've been known to hijack family vacations to steer us toward the factory of like one of my favorite potato chip brands, right? Where mm. you can where you can walk into the yeah. entryway and they have samples and you can like stay there for hours sampling yeah. every variety of potato chips. That's fun. Um, but I hesitate to say that because I'm one of those people, incredibly lucky, who can take a handful of potato chips, one of my most luscious snack foods eat that handful, close the bag up and not think about it again until until the next day or even yeah, the next yeah. week. So so I even hesitate to talk about kind of my my eating habits. But I have to say that one of the things I'm convinced that can help us turn the tables on these companies is just to find any possible way to do more cooking ourselves. And for mm. for me, it became like making my own spaghetti sauce. And I actually have a recipe yeah. down now to like 90 seconds. And granted, if it simmers more on the stove, my family's more apt to eat it. But Okay, but please by- send it. <laughs> I, I grow tomatoes in my garden, so I'm very interested. Oh, that's in, even yeah. better. Why well, yeah. don't do that? I take a, a can of tomatoes oh. and <laughs> some olive oil and throw a little bit of garlic in there for a bit and grab what other, yeah, whatever dried spices to, in the, mm-hmm. in I have, and that's it. Yeah. <laughs> so it doesn't have to be complicated. Yeah. But, but by putting your hands on the food and taking a little bit of time in your day, I think what that does is cause us to be 
mindful about the food. And mindlessness is one of the characteristics of processed food because these companies know if they can get us to not pay too much attention to their product, we're going to eat more and more. And cooking slows us down. Yeah. You know, just got me thinking about how all of this has been the timeline of processed foods and fast foods has been parallel to the timeline of most households having two working parents. Mm. And I wonder if they kind of play off each other. Oh, absolutely. So the, the, the food industry invented the term convenience foods as a way of convincing us that when both people went into the workforce and look, I mean, we're talking about women here because the percentage of women working outside yeah. of the home increased dramatically after World War II and men, right? didn't step up, didn't pick up the responsibility or share in the responsibility of cooking. And so the industry basically raised its hand and said, don't worry, we'll take over from you. And that was the advent of convenience foods in the grocery store. They basically said, we'll do the cooking for you. You don't have to come home at seven o'clock, tired from work and figure out what to cook for dinner. We'll do the cooking for you. And that was great in some way, but there was this huge hidden cost to that. Basically, this this huge hit to our health that we took in these convenience foods. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. I guess a, a, a price that, oh gosh, I don't even know how to calculate if the price of that because <laughs> it's been a benefit to all of us to have women in the workforce. Um, oh, but, right. Yeah. yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> but I think I don't think that's a problem. I mean, I think yeah. the problem, uh, hey, I think it was the other adult in that house, man or woman, what have you, not picking up the slack, right? And sure. that's saying, okay, mm -hmm. we're both working now. We can figure this out. I mean, my mom worked outside of the house. Um, and, you know, I remember her spending a little bit of her Sunday afternoon, evening, cooking meals for the weekdays that she would then freeze and have ready. She was yeah. She was that kind of committed to to keeping us eating well, even mm. though she was working outside of the house as, as much yeah. as my father was. So yeah. I think that was the problem, that we lost sure. track of that shared responsibility. Yeah. And, and as you, you know, said, with the, with the food companies and how they kind of preyed on mothers who had guilt about going to the workforce because their mothers didn't, and it was a new era for working women. And so perhaps the, the food companies are to blame. Well, now we have, you know, now yeah. we're into my, one of my favorite products to talk about is the Lunchables, right? I mean, oh, the Lunchables. Gosh. I grew up on those. The, the Lunchables was <laughs> The created... pizza ones. I love those oh, pizza yeah. ones. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Lunchables were created to solve a problem at Kraft and Hormel, which is they had this surplus of processed cheese and ham, and they didn't know what to do with it. People weren't buying. They were making so much. They, right? So, so the inventor of the Lunchables was really well-intentioned. He was trying to save jobs at like the processed ham factory, right? And he sat around with really brilliant people and they looked at, like they thought of all kinds of ways to kind of repackage those ingredients. And then they came up with the first Lunchables, which was, you know, just bits of cheese and ham and crackers. And Cracker. then somebody came, up with the, somebody came up with the idea of, of, the, of the pizza Lunchable and they go, there's no way kids are going to eat like a cold piece of like dough crust and mix it themselves. But what they didn't realize and they did later was that Lunchables were not about the food. It was about kind of the emotion, the empowerment. When kids yeah. walked into the lunchroom with that beautiful little tray and whipped it out of their satchels. I mean, they were like the cat's meow of the lunchroom, right? It was yeah. empowerment. And yeah. so they marketed things. But but I started off by the, <laughs> by the mom. So one of the ideas with it too is that Lunchables became the present that parents would give their kids because they felt they were too crazy busy at 7 a.m. in the morning to make lunch for their kids. Yeah. And so they were wrapped. The, the, the early wrappings even looked like a, you know, like a uh -huh. gift, like, like a, like a, like a present. <laughs> a treat. To, yeah. Um, yeah. To ease our guilt on, yeah. on, you know, giving over the responsibility for feeding our families to these companies. Sure. Well, I mean, I, I don't think that the Lunchables were any less healthy than our public school food options. So <laughs> it wasn't the biggest thing. But it is. I mean, there is there is some really compelling research around 
companies like Ikea, right? Like you put it together. There's a sense of pride in the product. You like the product better because you put in some sweat equity. And I think that's the same thing with those little pizzas. You, you know, you get to brush on the pasta sauce, you get to spread on the cheese. There's, um, you know, getting the kids involved in making it. That's, it's fun. So. Oh yeah. And sales really took off. I don't remember the jingle, but but the jingle for Lunchables for was, like, yeah. well, I said jingle, it's actually a saying. I'm not sure there was okay. a song, but but the expression went, all day you got to do what they say, but lunchtime <laughs> is all yours, right? If you're yeah. a kid, that is like power. <laughs> <laughs> I laugh, but I mean, it's, it, 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 it is, I mean, it's sad. It's, it, these companies uh, get into the psyche of children and. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, but, yeah. but in, and the sad part, the, or the more troubling aspect is that Lunchables kind of ushered in the era where fast food chains began moving into the grocery store and companies began inventing what I, I guess what I like to call fast groceries and dial forward to today. And you're seeing all these marketing deals between our favorite fat, you know, fast food junk restaurants and stuff in the grocery store mm-hmm. as a way of just kind of hitting us twice in the, in the, in the reward center, the brand get us excited sure. about these products. Oh, and by the way, the inventor of the Lunchables, by the way, Bob Drain, he really wanted to add carrots and apples to the Lunchables, but, very quickly, they realized because of the nature of the distribution system for for these highly processed food products, there's like no they would go bad in a week. Lunchables mm. have to you know stay in the factory and then stay in the distribution center and then stay in the store and then in your fridge, yeah. you know, ultimately for kind of like months and months in some cases. And so he knew what the right thing to do was in terms of balancing the nutritional profile, but wasn't able to do it because of the systemic underlying food distribution systems that's totally geared toward these highly processed foods. Yeah. So they added a Snickers instead. (laughs) And a little, you know, a little soda sugary drink for you. Oh my goodness. So um, we're we're running out of time. I have a couple of other things I did want to touch upon. Um, You know, one, I I just want to know if you, if you're optimistic that we can turn around the food industry to better serve the health of Americans, or if it's just like a lost cause. I mean, certainly more and more people are caring about what they what they what they put in their bodies. And there was this delicious moment just a few years ago when the heads of the biggest companies got together in Florida for an investor conference and one after the other raised their hands and had to acknowledge that their sales were faltering. We were buying less of their junkiest stuff. And the most forthright among them, she was head of the Campbell Soup Company, you know, got up and said, we're losing the trust of our consumers. We've got to do something to to turn around. Um, but I think it's still an open question whether mm-hmm. these big companies can play a meaningful role going forward. What you see a lot of in the store now is what I call health washing, right? They're pretending to make their products better. But it's stuff like adding a little bit of protein to sugary cereal and splashing the word protein on the front of the package. Because there's there's some sense that protein in some diets in a very kind of careful situation can help you make full help you feel fuller faster and thus keep you from overeating. But you know, five grams of protein in a sugary cereal ain't going to do that for you, right? So you so you see them kind of promoting supposedly better for us ingredients as their solution. Um, it, 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 and like I say, I'm, I'm optimistic, boy, I'm optimistic on us kind of getting it. I'm not optimistic on them being able to, re, you know, reduce uh, their own addiction yeah. to, the, to the things, right? Their it needs to be books. driven by consumers. Demand, you yeah. know, consumers have to demand different and then they'll adjust. And it comes back to mm. us, you know, changing how we value food and, yeah. and, you know, and demanding that food can be affordable, yummy, um, convenient, but, but, but also good for us as well. I mean, that's, yeah. that's the real hard part. What do you think about these large food companies owning diet? companies. Yeah. So I was shocked Yeah, to learn that not only are they engineering perfect amounts of ingredients to drive us crazy, um, and not only are they, you know, exploiting our 
basic natural instincts that draws to food in a way that's now hurting us. Um, they also began exploiting our efforts to regain control of our eating habits. And so back in the, oh, I think it was the 70s, none other than Heinz, which is now Kraft Heinz, bought the single largest, most famous dieting plan there was, Weight Watchers. Um, knowing that basically they could get people coming and going. They could sell yeah. them frozen French fries one day and then a strategy for dealing with excess weight the next. And when they did that, the entire industry followed suit. And suddenly you had mm. the processed food industry gaining ownership over the biggest diet plants and products. And not only that, but they moved through the grocery store inventing new diet versions of their products. So you'd go to the freezer aisle and there'd be the hot pockets, right? But right next to it, the lean, lean pockets. pockets. Yes, and yes. we're supposed to, and frankly, when you look at the label, there isn't a whole lot difference between the two, but we're supposed to stand there, right? And decide, okay, am I feeling strong enough this week that I can get away with the lean pocket? Or am I like, so, you know, weirded out and stressed out that I've got to go for the full hot. I mean, it, and the company doesn't care which you buy. It's they're still selling or something. That's wild. So now that you have kind of two amazing books on this topic, what's what's next for you? Is there going to be a third? Is there something else within food that you're looking to explore? Well, there's actually a cinematic version of what we've been talking ah. about in the works. And it's still early. Right. Okay. But I have a producer and we're talking to directors and we're kind of figuring out what the best way to go out this. So that's kind of exciting. That's a whole new, oh, that's very a cool. whole new world. Um, and in terms of the next book project, I am, I am looking high and low. If anybody has any suggestions, I'm wide open. Yeah, I would love for you to look into kind of our agriculture um, mm. moment in the U.S. and, and how that's evolving. That, that could be really interesting for food security um so oh, just yeah no, yeah no thank you yeah absolutely <laughs> great well thank you michael so much for joining us and thank you to everyone for tuning in if you haven't yet you can pick up michael's latest book hooked food free will and how the food giants exploit our addictions at your local bookshop thank you thanks for having me and thank you so much for your work Thanks for listening to this episode of The Heart of Healthcare. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. The Heart of Healthcare is a product of Offscript Health. We are a healthcare engagement company built for patients and caregivers by patients and caregivers. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producer is Brianna Seely. Our intern is Antonella Sterniolo. Our host is Hallie Tecco. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Brianna Seeley. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscriptnot.com. That's media at offscript.com. For more information, visit offscript.com. Offscript.